And let me cut this thing off of mute. It sounds a little bit better. Let's try that again. Amen. What beautiful music we had today. Today we will be looking at uh, the little letter of 1 Peter. It's towards the back of your Bible. If you can't find it, look in the index. It'll get you there right quick. But the last time I spoke, we, we uh, looked at the Great Commission. And we talked about what it means to be Christians living today. And uh, mission fields aren't just overseas, but they are in our own back door. And today we will look at a message to a group of Gentiles living outside the Holy Land in an area of Asia Minor. So think of modern day Turkey. We'll be looking at what it means to live in a foreign land, a land where the gospel is at odds with the culture. Is that starting to sound familiar? While we claim to be a Christian nation, we know that our society, our culture is moving away from Christian values at a rapid rate. What that does is put a spotlight on those of us who claim to be authentic Christians. I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing. I would love to live in an area where everybody believed the same thing I do, thought the same way I thought. It just makes life easier. But the thing is, it also waters down the message of the gospel. Because if everybody is Christian, then no one's really Christian because nothing stands out different. But now as our society changes, those of us who have fallen in love with the Christ, who have proclaimed the message of the cross and do their best to live by it, now stand out. Now there's an interesting parallel in this letter. One, I like this letter because it, it uh, baffles scholars and those who study scripture. And why is that? Well, we think about Peter. Who is Peter? A Galilean fisherman, right? So we don't think him as uh, some kind of well-educated scholar. And this letter was written, written in good Greek. So if you're taking Greek learning classes or Greek New Testament classes, and they're offering this one, this is the one you take because it's easy to read. It's easy to interpret. There are a few areas that will give people uh, interpretation issues, but overall, this is a good letter to translate into another language. And so scholars think, well, how does this Galilean fisherman who probably spoke Aramaic or Hebrew or other language at the time, probably knew some Greek, how does he write so well? Couldn't be him. Maybe it was somebody else. And then another thing that they used to defend their reason that Peter wasn't the author is the fact that Peter wasn't a missionary in this land, was he? So who did mission travels in Asia Minor? Well, you think about it. And those who traveled in Asia Minor was Paul. So why didn't Paul write this letter? And as our Amber Alerts go off, <laughs> we will think about this. So if you have an iPhone, please do so. Take it out and cut off your ambient alert, and we will move on. Don't you just love technology? But this letter was written by someone who wasn't supposed to write this letter. It was written something very well. But if you ever notice in the last paragraph, he, he cites Silas and Mark. Who is Mark? 
Mark was Peter's interpreter, but also he rode around with Barnabas and Paul. So did Silas. And so we have missionaries who came in contact with his people, and now they are working with Peter, a pillar of the early church. If you wanted to have some cred behind you, you got Peter to talk on your behalf. But these two that they cite, their job is to write letters. So it's not unheard of that someone help Peter write. That's what I would have done if I had somebody in my congregation that was very good at something. So think of a building project. If you have a builder in your con congregation, who is the first person nominated to lead a building project for a church? It's the builder. If you had someone who writes letters for a living, who is the first person you asked to help? A letter writer. That doesn't mean Peter wasn't responsible for its contact. That just meant someone who could put the words together without getting all the red marks by your professor written all over your page was the one assigned to do it. And it is important to understand this context. So we have a group of Gentile churches spread out through Asia Minor, a circular letter that's going to go to more than one congregation. But we have a people that when they begin to live like the Scriptures, they live different because the Scripture calls us to be moral people in an immoral world. And their world was morally corrupt. They lived different, and so they were ostracized. They were called atheists because they didn't go to all the pagan festivals. They only worshipped the one true God. They were said to have love feasts because it says, you know, greet your, your brother and sister with a kiss of, you know, brotherly kiss, that kind of thing. There was all kind of reasons that they were ostracized. Now, there was persecution going on in this era, so don't get me wrong. It wasn't wide-scale at this point when this letter was written, but there was persecution for those who believed in Christ. But think about it, and we see this in our society. For those minorities, for those outsiders, for those who do not have a sense of power, they can lose their jobs, their occupations. They can be shamed out of a marketplace. So there's more than one type of persecution that can change your life. If someone has the power to affect your pocketbook, that's just as much persecution as being thrown in jail. And so that's what these people were facing. And many times we are starting to look at that today. That we have a government that's starting to lean far away from Christian values. And because of the things that we could believe, it could very well impact our pocketbook. So I don't believe we're there yet. I don't believe we're as close to this society as some people would believe. But unless things change in our country, we will be there before we know it. By the time some of your grandchildren are working, they may face some of these very challenges. And so let's look at this letter. We're going to be in chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 7. This is what it means to be a Christian living in a pagan world. Peter reminds them. He says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling, as each has received a gift. Use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God... 
whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The end of all things is at hand. Just before this, Peter reminds the congregations that you can live like this in light of the crucifixion, in light of the suffering of Christ. So he reminds them to put things in perspective. How quickly do we lose sight of our perspective? We do that all the time. We get self-centered. We only focus on the things that are at the tip of our fingers. But Peter reminds the congregations that if you are going to be a Christ follower, you have to keep things in perspective. Can you compare your suffering to that of Christ? He reminds them this. And so don't complain about having to help set up tables, wipe up spilled glasses of milk, change diapers. Keep things in perspective. He says, you think you have it bad. But Christ suffered more. Now, there are some in the congregation that probably are suffering what Christ does. But that helps them. It shows their love for others because what they are enduring for their sake. This is an outward perspective. We are not to think of ourselves as something to brag about. Did you notice that in the scripture? It says, each one has received a gift. Each one of us, we've been gifted. Why are we given these gifts? What if your gift is athletics? Is it to go professional, make a bunch of money, and be so proud of your accomplishments? <laughs> no. What if your gift is business, and you can make a bunch of money? And you can share a lot. Is that something to brag about? Just go anywhere that takes donations. And what will you notice? You'll notice little signs all over the place. Have you seen these? Sometimes they're little brass plaques, if I can get it out. Sometimes they're great big old words plastered on the side of a building. Have you ever seen a library named a library? No. It's usually a memorial library to so-and-so because through an endowment or a donation or a gift or some kind, somebody paid a lot of money to help provide for these libraries. Good things. I'm not talking about it's, ba- it's not bad to be able to do that. But that's not what we're called to do. We are not called to be able to use our gifts of either business or making money or these kind of things to make ourselves proud. Sometimes we can't stop others from putting our names on things because we have meant so much to them that we have left a legacy that we can't undo. Legacies aren't bad things. Sometimes we can't stop people from honoring us for what we do. But the Scriptures tells us something different. It's not about what we do to be bragged about. It is not about that. It says, God shows varied gifts, it says, varied gifts of grace. But before we get to those gifts, it starts this way. He says, the end of all things is at hand. There is a 
perspective of judgment, isn't it? We have to keep in mind that Christ suffered for us and that His grace is what brings us to account and that He will come back. If we just look at faith as a life insurance policy, we have some folks out here that sell those. So if you need one, see them. But faith isn't about saving us from the eternal fires of hell, is it? That is a great reward, but that is not why we have faith. We have faith because Christ is the one who suffered and who died on our behalf and that we believe in the gospel. But it is in faith that we are given gifts from God, that we are able to serve one another But we remember we live in a time of in-between. Christ has already come. Grace has brought us freedom. But in this freedom, it is not made complete. For we long for the day that Christ comes that will finally and fully declare victory. The war is over, but the battles still rage. When Christ comes to collect his bridegroom, he will end the pain of death, the corruption of sin, and with him will bring a new heaven and a new earth when all the old will be wiped away. But we remember that we serve a holy and just God. We like grace. We don't like justice. We want justice for us but not justice to us. Because justice means that we will stand and have to make amends or make right for all the things that we have done wrong in our life. The end of all things is at hand, and justice will prevail. But it is the mark of the cross that will save us, that will bring us through, that bridges those fires of hell. And our first act as a Christian begins with prayer. We talk about prayer as being powerful and that changes things. Because through prayer, we have seen loved ones, strangers healed. We have seen needs met that we cannot explain. We've seen miracles and signs take place in our presence. As simple as the word prayer sounds, it is harder than it seems. We have prayer warriors in our midst. They are gifted with the very act of prayer. But we can't take prayer lightly. Because we are told to to treat prayer as in a communion with a friend. As Jesus is a friend. But he's not like a friend that we know of in our earth because we have friendships where it doesn't matter what we do it doesn't matter how we live because they're probably living just same way with us but we are called to be different if we want our prayers to be effective it says therefore be self-controlled and sober-minded how does this affect our prayers let's think about it If we haphazardly go about life, 
If just anything goes, we have no plan. We have no direction. We are flying by the seat of our pants. Sometimes good things can happen to those people. There's a thing called dumb luck. There are many people who have made millions of dollars off of plain dumb luck. Let's talk about the lottery. Of course, there's a thing about dumb luck. It usually doesn't come through self-control or being sober-minded, does it? So when we look at lottery winners in the past, what do we notice? They have may have won millions of dollars. Give them a few years. They still live the same way, by the seat of the pants. Throw a few bucks down at the convenience store, pick a lottery ticket up. Hey, got a bunch of money. But when they have a bunch of money and they still are unself-controlled, that they're not sober-minded in their thinking, that money fades quickly, doesn't it? And there's some, at the end of the day, who are worse off before they won the lottery than after. And so that is an example for all of us. We are to come to our prayer life with self-control and being sober-minded. Because morality makes a difference in our lives. It's not about raising us up as being the holy other than you. It's not about being the, you know, the, this kind of shining example that you can set yourself above. But it's about the right perspective. And as it says later, it says it's about being stewards of God's varying grace. Stewards. Those who care for someone else's property. Other, someone else's resources. It is about being careful in the way that we live. For when we take the time to plan, that is not a fault to trusting God. Because God is in our plans as much as He is in our presence. There are stories about Christians who hear God's call, and without a plan, they leave their home to follow it. Some of those are met with success. Some of those aren't. But God gave us reason for a purpose, that we are to think about things carefully with self-control. I think back to my calling in ministry. What would it have been like if I would have just left the day that I heard God's call on my life to become a preacher? Wouldn't have gone very well. I owned a house. I had a job. I had four little ones to care for. But because I heard God, and because I learned that being self-controlled and sober-minded in judgments, I thought about things before we left. I communicated to my wife because I know that as God calls a minister into the gospel, he also calls his whole family. And she was on board with it. What a blessing for me. Of course, some days I wish maybe she said no. Because <laughs> we had a lot of tough days ahead of us. We continue to raise those four small children on a seminary and budget. 
but we thought about what we were doing. We listened to God's call and we followed it faithfully. But he gave us reason and foresight in how to accomplish the goals. Eventually, he brought us here where it seemed like we made a right decision at some point in our lives. But this is how God works. He teaches us to be mindful of the sacrifices of the suffering that Christ did. He teaches us to be mindful of the future, that we will be accountable for how he lives. But he teaches us that in the presence, we are to be self-controlled, that we are to be sober-minded. But he teaches us also, above all, it says, keep loving one another earnestly. Since love covers a multitude of sins. Now don't take this the wrong way. This isn't a license to sin. This is a common sense evaluation of relationships. If you are truly in love with someone. I mean if you love them deeply. And they wrong you. Is that the end of the relationship? Raise your hand if you've been married more than 20 years in here. Let me ask you, has your partner ever messed up? (laughs) Why are we laughing? We all know that answer. (laughs) Love covers a multitude of sins. This is about relationship. Is about the relationship of a community of faith. This is hard. Being self-controlled, sober-minded 100% of the time is hard. Living a morally, faithfully life is hard. That is why Peter and Jesus taught us that love is the answer. It's not about a license to live the way we want to. But it's about a relationship of a community of faith. When there is love in a community and someone messes up, we can forgive, that we can bring them back. And it doesn't matter what they have done, they can never break that. For when there is no love, even the slightest jest, even the slightest wrong will fracture the relationship. And so above all, love covers a multitude of sin. But then it calls us to account on how we live our lives. Each and every one of us have been given different gifts. It's not about us, but it is about the service of others. You were called to speak. Speak if they're very oracles of God. That one scares me because I butcher about every word I ever say. If you are called to serve, serve in the strength that God has given you. Now this is a recipe that can bring us down. What do I mean by this? When we do the little things as if we are serving God Himself with the strength that He gives them, we usually succeed, don't we? In our success, many times, we'll go to our head. There will be a point in success that we start thinking, this is me. I have done this. I have earned this money. This is mine to do with as I see fit. But that's not what the scripture tells us. 
It says, if you serve, serve in the strength of God. Because God has given you these gifts of service. And what does it say? In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Our gifts are meant for others, not for ourselves. If you have found success in life, it is through the gracious gift of God. Yes, you may see that it is something that you have done, but you are only able to do it because of the gifts God has bestowed on you. Each and every one of our gifts are different, but they all work together. They all work together for a community that loves one another. If your gift is a gift of medicine, great. We have sick people among us. If your gift is a gift of hospitality, great. Open your house. Open the sanctuaries and the fellowship halls. Bring people in. Because we know there's nothing better than eating together in their right. If your gift is in young children, serve in the nursery. Because anyone who has their own young children know that if they weren't cute, you'd probably kill them. Each and every one of us has our own unique set of gifts that God has given us. And they're all to be used in everything that the Lord may be glorified. And he ends it this way. To him who belongs glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Join with me in a word of prayer. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your message. Lord, teach us how to live as your servants, as those who have received such a gracious gift. We didn't deserve Christ, but yet He suffered for us. We didn't deserve these gifts that You've given us, yet You've blessed us. Lord, as we leave here today, Help us to evaluate where we are. Teach us that it is those gifts that we have that are a precious blessing from you. And that we are to use them together in a community of faith through love for one another. Not with grumbling. Not with half-hearted measures. But from the bottom of our heart. Lord, let your grace abound in us that we may share it with others. It is in your name we pray. Amen. And now as we enter our time of invitation, if you have decided to follow Jesus Christ and ask him into your heart, please come forward at this time. If you have decided that First Baptist Church should be your home church and like to move your membership today, please come forward. Or if you're simply in need of prayer, please come forward at this time. Please stand as we sing the invitation.